covering the story of the lives or the ministry of two prophets in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, and they're Elijah and Elisha. Been with us the last couple weeks, you learned like kind of a little bit of the background of the story here, but essentially Elijah, his name means Jehovah, is God, and he has been sent to a people who decided they don't want to worship the Lord anymore, and they've kind of gone sideways and they're worshiping other gods. And one of the stories that they were telling in that culture was that God's dead, and God's no longer. So God sends Elijah, who says Elijah, who says Yahweh is God, unto these people. And he, oftentimes when you see Elijah speaking, he says, as the Lord lives. So he'll say that over and over again. And he's testifying to the people that God is alive. What had happened here is the people and their leadership and the nations were worshiping false gods. These gods were being fostered into, into, the, the, into the Lord's people, and the Lord's people had basically become polluted. They were no longer following the ways of the Lord. And if they were, they were mixing their worship with ideologies, attitudes, actions that came directly from the gods that were going on within the culture. The king of the northern kingdom, his name was Ahab, and you don't get the feeling that Ahab was directly responsible, he was more complicit to the whole thing, right? So Ahab is kind of like, hey, whatever, because he's married to a woman whose name is Jezebel, and Jezebel was not a follower of God. She was a Phoenician. She came from a different culture and followed different gods. And her name means I call on Baal or I call on Bel. And her, the, the, the gods of her culture were essentially three. They, you don't even know them before you do it. We need to know about I'll tell you about them. But the first one is Baal. The second one is Astaroth, and the third one is Molech. And Baal was the god of the sky. God was, he, was the, he was literally the nature god. Okay? You were here last week, I'm sure I attended many people. But I said he was the god of climate change. Okay? He was the god of the weather and all the atmospheres and all the clouds. And they worshipped him. And they looked to the climate. And they looked to nature as their provision and as their provider. And they sacrificed to this god in order to receive back from them. And so I talked to you a little bit last week. I told you, listen, it doesn't matter what side of the debate you fall on in climate change. What you need to know is this, this world is not subject to the will of man. This world is subject to the will of God. So the, the world is not going to end because the polar ice caps have melted. The world's not going to end because of the global heat wave that struck the place and everybody goes, and there's a time to say, how do you know this? Because the Bible says it. It tells us how the world's going to end, and there's no mention of a flood. There's no mention of a big meteor, but there's no mention of a flood. What? There's a meter in the Bible? Yeah, So that's the point. But what ends up happening is, and what, how, do, how does that relate to us? Well, when we begin to identify with attitudes that are contrary to God's word, then we're, we're actually moving ourselves away from the Lord and into a place that he calls idolatry. And what, is this, what does that mean? It means that man is not to exploit the earth. Let me go back to this. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Man is not to exploit the earth, but man is neither to worship the earth either. You understand that? So we're not to just go and just take everything that we want and just completely destroy the land and just kill everything. That's not what God intended. Nor are we to worship the earth and not take anything from it. That's not God's intention either. Man has created, God has created man to be a steward. In other words, he gives us permission to take so long as we put back. We are responsible to steward the earth. 
to manage its resources and to benefit the resources in a way to where it benefits our benefits man, but it also restores or repairs the earth. And that's really where the division comes from, because either side of the argument, if the argument is on either side, either one of neither one of those arguments are true. Taking everything out of the earth is sin. Worshiping the earth is sin. Okay, just so that we're clear, which means it's off of God's intended plan. That's not God's purpose. God's purpose is not that we just literally just devastate the earth, and it's not God's plan that we worship and idolize the earth either. Neither one of those is that we are stewards. God gives you permission to receive from the earth. He gives you permission to mine the earth, so long as we do it in an ecologically uh, fair fashion. He gives you permission to harvest the trees. We have that permission. We have the permission to do that, so long as we're, we're culturally responsible with what we're doing. Does that make sense to you? That actually seems like common sense. I mean, hello. So that's God's intention for for us. And so what they were doing is they were worshiping the God of the sky. They were worshiping the God of creation. They were the God of the climate. And God shut up the weather so there was no rain. So the people would say, well, Baal sends the rain. We worship Baal. We sacrifice the Baal. We give unto Baal. And God said, really? So he shut up the rain. He showed them that God, the rain does not fall by the word of Baal. The word doesn't fall by the word of man. The word doesn't fall, the rain doesn't fall by the word of the climate. The rain falls by me. Very interesting thing. That's one of the things God claims complete sovereignty over is the rain. That while not necessarily the weather, but the sending of the rain. He sends rain. He makes that really clear. So he shut up the heavens. They worshiped another god, which was Astro. And say, well, what does these what do these idols have to do with us in the modern culture? Well, we don't worship idols, we worship attitudes. And we worship what's called ethos, which is a movement within the culture. Cultural movements, cultural points of identity. And so the ethos of Baal was to worship the climate. The ethos of Astroth was sexual licentiousness. Anything and everything goes. There's no boundaries. There's no laws. We'll make up our own laws, even if our laws break the law of God. That was it. We had, they created this absolute open attitude of sexuality and permissiveness sexually. And they worshiped this god, Astroth. And they would go up on the high hills and they would do the things that this worship of this God. They did it, did it in public, and they did it out in open with all of them. That's the interesting thing. Astro, Baal was worshipped in a different way, but Astro, you went up on a hill. You declared open sexuality. You declared everything goes and anything goes. So you tell me. Molech was a god of innocent blood. He was a god that was worshipped through the shedding of innocent blood, primarily through the sacrificing of children and mainly infants. Okay, we you see this in our culture? Yes, we do. On and on and on we go. The, the Phoenicians and the, these people were so wicked, Alexander the Great was going to conquer one of the one of Jezebel's people's cities called Tyre. Tyre and Sidon in the Bible were Carthaginian cities or Phoenician cities. And Alexander Tyre had never been conquered before. Where do you get the word tyrant from the word king of Tyre? So you know what these kind of how these people ruled and what they were like. So Tyre had never been conquered. In the ancient death time, Alexander the Great, the great army of Greeks, came across and they actually conquered the city of Tyre. And Tyre had two cities. It had a city on the land and it had a city out in the middle of the ocean. Alexander had combat engineers, and so he built a bridge going from the land out to the ocean. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't conquer Tyre. So there was a king that preceded, a nation or an empire that preceded the Greek Empire, and it was the Babylonians. The Babylonians couldn't conquer it. Because they didn't know how to get across the water. Every time they would besiege Tyre, the people would relocate out to the island and nobody could stop them. And so Tyre all often had to be bypassed. And so they were very arrogant, all these other things. 
Alexander creates this bridge, this causeway going out there, and they do all of these different things. And right before Alexander's about to storm the city, he offers them peace. He says, listen, if you all surrender, we're going to be cool. You know, if you don't, it's not going to be cool. All right? And the king's response, the king of Tyre's response, was to take his son to the top of the wall and sacrifice his son in front of the Greeks. These people believed in child sacrifice. They believed in the shedding of blood. They were very violent. They were very open. They were very just off the chart. And that's one of the things that they did. And he didn't think anything of it. He took his personal time, he took his heir, and he killed his heir right up on the wall. Well, it didn't play too good. Greeks didn't play on that. They're like, what? These people are like heathens. These people are barbarians. And so when they went in there, they destroyed the city. Romans did the same thing. When they destroyed the Phoenicians, they eradicated their capital city of Carthage. And they salted the earth, and nothing would ever grow there again. And I told you guys before, it's got to be pretty bad. The Romans are not offended. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because they weren't like known as the most peaceful, loving people in the world. But if you offended them, well, man, they're like, man, you guys are real bad. You know, I salt the earth. So it's kind of like that. This is who Jezebel, this is the culture that she came from. And these were the gods that they were worshiping. Elijah calls them all together, fire on the mountain. That was last week, and they destroyed the prophets of Baal. Well, in modern terms, the prophets of Baal represented spiritual authority over the nation. So the people had just torn down the spiritual authority over the nation. And when that happens, it clears the way for revival. So long as we serve other gods, the gods of the culture, the gods of our town, the gods, or gods of our own creation, or our ancestral gods, revival can't come into our lives. Next slide. This is a big thing, so I'm going to take this little journey here, and I'm going to show you I'm on this quest of spiritual authority, it seems. So uh, I feel like the Lord is just really summoning this. And if God is summoning something, it's because there's something beyond what he's calling for that he wants to do. God, when God tells you to do something, his intent doesn't always lie in the thing that he's telling you to do. His intent often lies beyond what he's telling you to do. He's bringing something behind what he's telling you to do. So when he tells you to do something, you're like, well, what's the purpose of that? Well, his purpose may not be in the thing he's telling you to do. His purpose is beyond it. So when God says, hey, we're going to do spiritual warfare, it's not because God wants to do spiritual warfare. It's because he wants to bring revival. You understand? And that cannot come unless this happens first. And so he does the same thing with uh, in, in here with children of Israel. They tear down their, their cultural gods. We as God's people, if we do not exercise authority, authority will not be taken or authority will not be known. The devil's just not going to decide to pack up his bags and leave if the church does not come against him. Jesus isn't going to do it for us because he's already done it for us. He's already conquered death and hell and the grave and Lucifer and his whole kingdom through the cross and the resurrection. And he's empowered you and me to go and vacate those things. That's why Jesus said, you know the state where he's dead, cast out devils. Casting out devils isn't just casting them out of people who seem to be demonized. Casting out devils means out of families, out of homes, out of cities, out of nations. That's what he's talking about. Wherever you see the kingdom of darkness, throw it out. In its systems, sometimes they're cultural systems, sometimes it plays out in a lot of, a lot of forms. We're just gods of our culture. What are some of the gods of our culture? We have to take authority over the gods of our culture. What are the gods of, one of the gods of our culture is callousness. Huge amount of callousness, indifference, don't care, and particularly indifference to the things of God, indifference to the things of Jesus. There's a huge, that's a huge movement. And you can take the pulse of that among the church and among the Christians. 
And it usually matters because, listen, you get what you preach. This is the old adage. Wesley said, if you want to see, if you want to see God, if you want to see the fire of God, set the pulpit on fire. And that's basically what he said. You know, start preaching the word of God and start bringing into the authority and the fire and the passion of the Lord unto the people, and that fire will transfer. Come on. The God that we understand to be is another God of our culture. Well, my God is like this, my God is like that. I believe God this way. Oh, God wouldn't do that. Jesus isn't sending anybody to hell. You know, that, that's not the God of the Bible, that's the God of the culture. Somebody said, Jesus said, Why would, why would the Holy God send anyone to hell? And I heard Franklin Graham go, Well, if you read the text, he's not sending them there, he's throwing them. They will be thrown. That's what it says. Why? Because they neglect so great a salvation. It is an absolute affront to God who gave himself and humbled himself beneath us to trample him under our feet and say it's no big thing. That's what Hebrews said. It's those who have full knowledge and revelation of the gospel and their need for salvation and have rejected it. That's what it means. Those who have had the grace of the impartation of, wow, I'm a sinner, wow, Jesus is Lord, wow, I need to do something about this, nah. And you persist in that lifestyle and that attitude, and you die in that condition, there is no salvation whatsoever. Okay? So what about people who don't know? Well, God makes provision for that. But if, typically in the United States of America, people aren't fuzzy about the gospel. They're not fuzzy about who Jesus claims to be. Who do you say that I am? You see? So that's the calling that we have upon our life. As we have created, if we think that we are superior, and that we can define who God is, that is a huge problem. Huge problem. No, I think God's like this. I think God's like, look, listen to how people talk. You know, misrepresentation. That's what it means to carry the Lord's name in vain, to take his name in vain. You know what that means? doesn't mean you're saying Jesus over here, Jesus over here, God over here, God over here. It means you're carrying me, you're carrying my identity in an empty way. You're carrying me in a way that's meaningless. Don't carry my name in a meaningless way. Don't take my name upon you and be vain with it. Be empty. That's what vanity means. Empty. He wants to get rid of the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If the salt loses its savor, it gets trampled under feet by men. Could it be that the church has lost its savor in 21st century America? Because we are certainly being trodden underfoot by men. And it's because we do not do what we're supposed to do. We do not speak. And this doesn't fall necessarily on the church. This falls more on the leadership of the church. And I'm in that group, so I'm speaking to myself on that. Right? So that's that's what it looks like. So we have these gods, gods we understand them to be. That's a God of our culture. It's not gods we understand them to be, guys. It's God is who he declares himself to be. Jesus Christ is God. There is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. Christ alone. It's not one man, many, it's one and only. That's the gods of this culture. Islam, this is what you hear it all the time. We have pastors standing this. Oh, Islam, and the God of the Jews, and this, and all these other things. We all worship the same God. Both of them, it's all ecumenical. Native Americans, yeah, it's all the same God. Romans, we're not worshiping the same God. Name him. Jesus says, give me my, use my name. Call me by name. God can be known. His name's not Allah. Okay? Got news for you. His name's not Krishna. His name's not Buddha. His name's not El Ron Hubbard, or who you think he is. His name is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone. He gave that up. The gods of our culture is the gods of our mind, the gods of our attitude, and we exalt things above God. Gods that we've created. 
God says you will make no God in a graven make no idols in a graven image. Make no idols. What does that mean? It's kind of like time to make idols, don't we? But we do. We have to make idols. We make them, we just gotta make an idol. And what is an idol? It's a master passion that drives your life. It is what you withhold from the Lord for. Well, this belongs to Jesus, but I think I'm gonna keep it for myself. And I'm gonna give it to that. That's an idol, okay? That's what it is. You just gotta follow what it is. You wanna worship idols, go ahead. You can be born again and still be an idolater. In case you know, didn't know that. It's true, lots of that's happening on Jesus Christ is God, we worship all these other idols, all these other things we put before him. Sons and daughters, but we do not honor our position. What do you withhold from the Lord? What are you willing to sacrifice your time, your abilities, and your money for? More than Jesus. What calls you? You know, to where you just take the things of the Lord and cast them on the wayside and follow. It's just true. I mean, we should come right up and sit on the couch this morning and have a conversation. I don't like this conversation. Well, this is how we go free. Idols bring you into bondage. Christ brings you into liberty. Christ brings you into freedom. You are making a sacrifice a lot of you here this morning to be here, right? But liberty is coming to you. Life is coming to you. Yeah. This isn't bondage. This isn't slavery. This is hope. Yeah. This is renewal. This is restoration. That's what's going on here. So what are you willing to sacrifice? What, do you, what belongs to the Lord that you're holding back? Your time? Your talent? Your treasure? We can get really clear on this, right? So our time... Listen, this is the day that the Lord has made, okay? So we are obligated and duty-bound to offer God at least one day of our lives. That's the minimum standard. You know what the minimum standard is? One day. It would be that God would be involved in your life on every day, that God would be centered on your worship on every day. But the Lord says, can you give me one day? And for the most part, we can we struggle to even get to that point. Yeah. I just bought a boat, Pastor. The weather's good. The boat is calling me. The boat is calling me. Yeah, whatever it may be. And I'm not talking about like you have a day or two where that happens. I'm talking about a consistent pattern. You can identify it through patterns. It's not one day here, one day there, one week here, one week there. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a pattern. And every opportunity, you know, we just chuck Jesus behind our back and go, we're going to follow him, man. We're going to go in on We're going to go all in on him. This is where idols come from. This is what this is what happened. They were worshiping idols, and the glory could not move among his people, so God wanted to tear the idols down and invoke a revival, an awakening. Ancestral towers, this is a big one. What follows your bloodline? What's in your bloodline? Crickets? Destruction, poverty, disease, sickness, depression, that, that's, not, that's not kingdom. That's not kingdom. Anything that consistently follows your ancestral line is not of the blood of Jesus. It's not. If it seems out of the ordinary, oh man, it's like everything. Dude in my family is an alcoholic. Isn't that weird? And here's how man with our minds. Well, it must be, it must be a gene of alcoholism. So we need to stop and study the double helix of the DNA strand to find the genetic flaw of alcoholism. That's what we do. Because we find no other solution to it. We don't understand spirit. We don't understand bondage. We don't understand ancestral issues that carry forth into our mind. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You were commanded to take back the land. Yes. Take back every area of your life, yes. including your ancestral bloodline. Include every area of your life, you were commanded to wage war and take it back. Yes. 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 
What are the ideologies, attitudes, decrees on your family? If there's attitudes in your family, you know, oh, no one ever succeeds in our family. Oh, well, no, no, who do you think you are? You think you're better than all of us? Or, you know, maybe it's an air of superiority where your whole family looks down on everybody else. You know, maybe you, you come from this side where everything is like pushed down, or maybe you come from this side where you think you're better and your whole family thinks you're better and you push everybody else down. That's not right either. So what are the, what are the attitudes? What holds sway over your compulsions? Why do you do what you do? You have a compulsive pattern in your life that just happens over and over and over again. I'm not talking about one day. I'm not talking about one week. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a pattern. Something compels you to go into rage. And then you rage, and then you don't know why. And then you see it again. And you see it again. And then you see it again. And there's lots of compulsions. What are the driving motivations? What are your compulsive behaviors? The issue is what is behind that? That's the question. Right? It's not because of it's not because you're Italian, Cuban, whatever you may be, Puerto Rican, Irish, you know, Filipino. It's not because you're it's not because you're any of that. There's something behind the compulsions. Right? So we can go into the mind and we can be cultural Christians and think that it's all these areas of the mind and it's psychology and all, all that stuff. And I'm not against <coughs> psychology per se, but I'm, I'm more spirit oriented and I believe Jesus is a little smarter than that. Okay? And I believe that when God talks about something and says, here's where it lies, that there not only is the problem, there's the solution, and there's the resolution. Okay? Next slide. So we have to take authority. Repentance, renouncing, declaring. Okay, we're going to get we're going to get into this a little bit. I want to leave some time. We're going to do some we're going to do some prayer declarations today. Okay, so I'm going to go a little quick over this, and I'll probably break the teaching down a little bit more. But I really felt like God wanted me to do declarations with you guys today, so we're going to we're going to do it. Repentance and renouncing. Repentance is simply returning it to Jesus. That's what it means. Okay, so let's be very clear on what repentance is. But man, I repent, but I didn't really feel sorrow. You know, we ideologize, we've created this, this under, ideology, this understanding that repentance, we just have to be weeping and howling and crying when we're really not repenting. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Repenting is simply returning it to Jesus. An attitude, an action, Lord, I give that back to you, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to carry that, I'm going to give that to you. Guilt, shame, whatever it may be, we're giving it back. It's the Hebrew word Teshuva, and it means return. We see it in salvation, we return our lives to Christ on and on. Second side of repentance is metanoia that we begin to see and think differently. Then we establish new patterns through declaration and decree. We declare and decree as the Lord says. Whether we understand or whether we even agree with it, so that that's irrelevant to the equation. The decree is what's important. Elijah, what he does here, I'm going to paraphrase for you, you can read it, it's in 1 Kings 18. Elijah, uh, they just tear down all the altars, they just destroy all the prophets of Baal, and he tells the king, go and eat, because I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. You heard the sound of it. So in case you don't know that, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. <laughs> there was no visible indicator that God was going to do anything. There was no visible indicator that the rain was about to fall. Elijah, who is a prophet, is going to operate, is going to show us two different aspects of how the prophetic works. Prophetic works by what we see, what we hear, what we are impressed. We get in the spirit. What is he saying? What is he showing? What is he impressing? That's how the prophetic works. So the first thing Elijah does is he hears a prophetic sound of rain. He can hear the rain. Okay? Everything in his life is known by the sound. One of the ways of meditating and hearing God and listening to the Lord is just getting into the spirit, getting into an attitude of worship and listening to 
the sounds of heaven, listening to what it is that he's saying. What is the Lord saying to the churches? What is the Lord saying to his people? And he is speaking uh, news for you. And so Elijah heard that it was going to rain. Then the second thing he did is he placed his head between his knees. And somebody said, oh, he was just in a humble posture. Look how humble Elijah was. And he began to pray. That's what it says. But it doesn't really tell us that he prayed. It just says he put his hands between his knees. So what was he doing? Well, again, you got to understand prophetic to understand what's going on here. Elijah not only heard, but then he went into visions. Paul says, let us go on to visions. <clears throat> you think visions and revelations are of the Spirit? Yeah, God is a revelator. Dreams and visions, Acts chapter 2. In the last days, they will see three three, three three visions, so that's part of our nature. And so Elijah goes into the Spirit, puts his head between his knees, and he begins to envision what God is doing. He hears the sound, now he goes into singing, and now he begins to press it into what he hears and what he sees, and he's calling what he hears and sees into the natural. On what authority? On the Lord's authority. When he saw and what he heard, God had shown him, God had spoken, and he has the ability to bring that into the natural. Honor of decisions in heaven. He was in line with the will of God. God wants to send rain. God's showing you rain. So he's beginning to call that, which is not as though it was. He sends his servant up seven times. Six times he goes up. Right? Next slide. Let's go to the next slide. Six times the servant goes up. Six times he comes back. He can hear it, and he can see it. Seven is not the magic number. Seven is an indicator is that he did it until it happened. He had a word and he had a vision. And he was relentless in pursuing it until he saw an indication that this was going to happen, or that it was happening. So it wasn't he did it seven times. Well, I prayed seven times. It's like, what? And nothing happened. You know? Did you pray until it broke? Did you pray until you were released? Did you pray until you saw something move? Did you pray? Because that's what he did. Literally, he saw a cloud that looked like a man's hand. What does that tell us? Well, we pray until we see the hand of God break into our world. We hear what he wants to do, we see what he wants to do, and we line our hearts up with it, and we pursue it. And what does that mean? That looks like you personally, that looks like for your family, that looks like for your church, that looks like for your city, that looks like for your nation. This isn't one dimension, it's multi-dimensional. What is the Lord saying over you? What is the vision that God has placed over your life? Are you prayerfully in alignment with that? Are you pressing into that? Do you see that vision? Are you pressing into that? Are you believing God for it? Are you aligning and beginning to discipline your life towards the thing that God has shown you? Elijah pressed in really hard. Next week, he was like literally exhausted and depressed. So when you carry spiritual things and you can encounter this great breakthrough, there's a lot of power that comes on it, and there's a lot of power that's released from it, and oftentimes it leads you tired. Have you ever heard the words, there's nothing? Anybody ever heard that? Nothing left? Okay? Nothing we can do? <laughs> there's no hope. There's no way. There's no change. So Elijah, the servant, comes up and goes, no change. Nothing yet. Nothing we can do. No hope. Why would you keep praying? Why should I be tired of running up and down this hill? What's going on here? My question to you is who told you that? If you heard the Lord and saw what the Lord wanted to give you, no one else has the authority to tell you anything different. No one else. If you said it, then we must believe it and begin to align and press into what he has decreed. This is what he said. I don't know how it's going to happen. He said it. Right? I can tell you some stories about it. I'll get to it. 
It's like a woman giving birth. All right, baby's with me on this. You're going to get touching his name and drop this. So it's amazing. Come on. A woman comes closer to death in no other way other than she's giving birth to a child. Kill me now, Jesus. I don't know what's going on here, but that's got to be easier than this. <laughs> we have modern epidurals so usually, you know, we have all these modern things, but pain is in birthing. Okay? Pain is in when you give birth. When you're about to give birth for something, pain precedes the miracle. Understand? And oftentimes, a lot of you here, myself included, there's a heavy weight of oppression that comes upon something right before God does it. Wow. Or right before you're about to break through. Because the devil sees in the spirit, and he's trying to get you to do the only thing that can defeat you. Quit. That's what he does. He oppresses you. He can't stop you, but he can oppress you. And he oppresses you to get you to quit. Because that is the only thing that can defeat you. That's it. And so when you're in the pain and you're in the oppression of all of this, you're probably closer to your miracle than you realize. You're closer to the victory than you realize. And the enemy is trying to disorient you, redirect you, get you quit. Oh, just give up on that. Go over here. Give up on that. Go over there. Well, unless the Lord's told you to do it, you don't have no, you're out of line. What has God told you to do? This is where it all really needs to road. Okay? We're going to talk about power and how we attain the things of God. Jesus said, be faithful unto that. So he told you to do something, and he has affirmed it to you. And you go back and ask him as many times as you want. Okay? You told me that. I'm not going to get mad at you guys if you come back and ask me. I'll tell you again. Lord, did you say that? Yeah, I said that. Are you sure this is what you want me to do? Yeah, that's You got any other directions? No, because we don't want it to school. Okay, are you sure? No, I'm sure. Go ahead and do it. He will affirm to you over and over again what he's told you. You can ask him 30 times. He doesn't count that as faithlessness. Faithlessness to the Lord isn't going back to him and asking him. Sure, that he, that is not faithlessness to him. Faithlessness to him is when we quit. Faithlessness to him is when he has told us clearly that we either don't do it or we do something else. That's how he attributes faithlessness. It's not asking. His nature is affirmation. So he's our father. His father is affirm. So he'll affirm, 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 and affirm. Who am I, Lord? Are you sure you told me I'm your son? Are you sure you still love me? Are you sure I'm still your daughter? Are you sure you still love me? He'll tell you 10,000 times 10,000. He'll tell you. You need to be sure. Like you're beautiful. Dad, I'm beautiful. Are you sure I'm beautiful? I know I had this dress on yesterday. I know I had this dress on today. Are you sure I'm still pretty? Dad, I'm strong. Look at me. Look how many. They look to the Father for affirmation. Your Father is an affirmer. You will affirm it. You will affirm your identity. You will affirm your purpose. You will affirm your vision. You will affirm wherever you are in that, in that spectrum that I'm describing. Some of you are at the place where you have to have your identity affirmed. Are you sure I have authority? You need your authority affirmed. Some of you, you need your inheritance affirmed. Those are the three pieces of victory. Identity, inheritance, and what was my third one? Authority. Our identity leads to understanding our inheritances and then understanding the authority and walking all three of those out with an uncomfortable force. I can't be defeated. I'm a son of Elias. I have an inheritance. I have great and precious promises by which I draw from the nature of my Father. I have absolute, total, and complete spiritual authority. And what more do I need? My attitude should not be a laboring at that point. We should have a sure attitude. With pain precedes miracle. Don't listen to anything else. Next slide. So we're going to do some renouncing. 
Okay, so these two guys will copy out. We do four different types of prayers. Some of you are like, oh, I'm not praying. Okay, let's be clear. I'm not making you pray. No one wants you to say anything you don't want to say. Okay, so you're free to not pray, but you're also free to say exactly as you are. In case you don't know, that's a bad thing. In the scripture, when people had been in the presence of the Lord, nobody wanted to stay the way they were. They're all like, Jesus, do something. Peter's like, I can't even leave you, man. I'm like flaming on fire every time I'm around you. Where am I going to go? Jacob said, man, don't let me, Lord, without changing me. Don't yes. leave me to myself. Yes. So we're going to do some authority issues, we're going to do uh, cultural, and we're going to do our personal, and then we're going to do a little bit of ancestral. And you say, is this going to root out everything? No, but it does. What, this, what the big first do is they're like, kind of like demo, like bulldozers. They knock down all the high invisible things. They knock all that down. Sometimes there's stuff that's rooted in caves and rooted underneath, and you have to root that stuff out too. But what the, what the big declarative first do is they bulldoze a lot of it. But there are oftentimes it stays underneath the ground or underneath the works or hidden somewhere. So when we do de declarative prayers or inner healing, deliverance of this kind of nature, breaking off and agreeing and realigning, there's there's destruction. We destroy certain things. But, so there's big deliverance and then there's also interpersonal deliverance. Sometimes we need it one on one, sometimes we need individual things to get rid of the other stuff that we can't get rid of. So if you would, if you're in, stand your feet. Right? Don't cross the arms of your heart, just open your heart. And let's just do this. So this is the one we're going to do over our country, or over the whole of the line. So let's say, in the name of Jesus, I declare before heaven and earth, I am a son or a daughter of the highest. I take my rightful position of authority. And I repent and I renounce the gods of this age, the gods of this culture, the gods of arrogance, the gods of godlessness, the gods of callousness, the gods of indifference. I break the power of the spirit of the age and all of its kind off of my life. Delusion and deception shall not rule me. Father, forgive me for any attitudes, agreements, or alignments that I have made with the gods of this culture. Anything and everything that does not align itself to you, your heart, and your kingdom purposes. I choose to see as my Heavenly Father sees. I choose to be who my Heavenly Father says I am. I submit my attitudes, my beliefs, to His truths willingly, whether I understand them or even if I do not agree with them, I still submit them under Him. He is God, and I am not. I renounce the idol of self, the fear of man, and the gods of man in all of their forms. Next slide. Come down. You guys have to go real quick. Come out and do that here. Like, Ooh, I don't know what happened. That was great. So here we're going to do some things where God specifically calls for repentance. Right? So here's where we go. I repent, I repent, I renounce the high things that I have worshipped. Everything 
I have placed above Jesus everything I have withheld from him. I will have no idols before him. I will give to him what is rightfully his. Fullness of worship, adoration, and praise. I will not withhold the testimony of what he has done in my life. I will not withhold the testimony of who he is and who I am before him. I renounce the joylessness that has come from my withholding, and I declare joy unspeakable and full of glory. We do tithes and offerings, and this is an area in the scripture that God calls for repentance. Okay? So whether you agree with this or not, it is an area where God says, you need to repent for your withholding from me. Okay? So this might get a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. Grab your seat. You can go right. There's, there's bagels afterwards that help you calm down. I repent of withholding, tithe, and offering. It is his, whether it is his, whether I believe it or not. His word says it belongs to him. I renounce the poverty that I have experienced by withholding this. The poverty of mind, the poverty of the spirit, the poverty of my relationships, and the poverty of my finances. My obedience gives the devil no right over me. The tithe and the offering is the seed of my harvest. And I decree with this seed that all of my harvest shall come forth. I repent and I renounce the worship of my time. Time belongs to my Father. I have no right to claim it as my own. I choose to create time and to take the time for the things that he says are important. Time for church, time for worship, time for fellowship, time for family. I renounce the leanness of my soul that has come from my selfishness. I release abundance in all of its forms that comes through my obedience. I receive a new heart, a new attitude today. Here we go. Holy Spirit, I give you permission and I give you authority over my life in these matters. And I command my spirit and my will into agreement with them. Next slide. Last one. I repent for the sins of my ancestors, going back to the beginning of time. I repent for the sins of ignorance, for the sins of arrogance, for the things they didn't know, and the things that they did. I renounce all inheritances attached to me from these sins. I break all curses that have been brought upon my bloodline because of their actions and inactions. All physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, relational. All of these and all of their kind. I renounce the shedding of innocent blood, whether by me or by my ancestors. All blood that was shed in violence, abortion, suicide, or murder. And I break off of me today all blood rights. And I declare that I am governed by one blood right and one only. And 
and that is the blood of Jesus over, in, and upon my life. I decree that my bloodline does not flow from the earth, but from heaven alone. My ancestral blessings flow from, and only from, the blood of Jesus. All of my inheritances, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, flow from my heavenly
arguments on exponential numbers. So that's the idea. God wants to create something new within his own. I bless you, and he bless you, and I may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, may the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you, may the Lord be gracious to you in every way, and may he give you peace, and may he forever live in his favor, and may he stand. God loves you, we love you. Have a great day.